but choice seems very much the same. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017. I'm John Lago Marcino. Today on The Dispatch, William Turton looks at how Google's algorithm botched a news story. They say they're going to make changes to their algorithm so it doesn't happen. A great change would be to blacklist 4chan. And Aaron Timms talks to one of artificial intelligence's earliest, most influential dissidents. I do believe that AI is facilitating huge problems for our society. Here's the dispatch. The future. William Turton. Hello. Yesterday, Google's algorithm botched a news story. Is that right? Yeah. So Google has this feature called Top Stories. When you search for something, sometimes three articles will be displayed at the top of the article. The little boxes. I'm looking at it right here. Right. And uh, so usually these boxes are filled with things from like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Um, But yesterday, it included two links to 4chan. 4chan, the infamous meme-laden website. Yeah, (laughs) as I was writing this story, I was like, how do you even describe 4chan anymore? It's just like this, it's like the dumpster fire of the internet. Right. Um, And definitely not reputable in any way, shape, or form. As a news source. Right. So the Gateway Pundit, which is this kind of wacky far-right website, published what they thought was the name of the shooter who was responsible for the events in Las Vegas. And when you searched that guy's name, two 4chan articles showed up in this top stories thing. But when these links are included in the top stories module, it kind of adds this aura of credibility as if it's legit. Like the one true answer kind of thing? Yeah, sort of like the one true answer. Or, you know, even it just differentiates it from search results. It's saying this is a top story. So Google doesn't view top stories as as a news product. Right. It seems like it, but in effect, it almost is, right? It's a top story. It sounds like something right. coming from a newspaper. Right. So what, what were these 4chan stories? So these 4chan stories, which are really just threads, were like these insane conspiracy theories about how the shooter, who wasn't actually the shooter, was some leftist Democrat working, you know, probably on behalf of the Clintons. There's, there's something totally crazy. And fabricated. Right. Totally just wrong. And, and you know... Let's say by some miracle it was correct. There's no reason to include 4chan in, in your top stories. And that's what's like so crazy about this is this, this top stories module is populated by an algorithm. But, you know, Google has full control over this algorithm. And, you know, if I was building this top stories algorithm, I think one of the first things I might want to do is blacklist some websites just so they don't appear, they don't get this added aura of credibility. And the first one I would probably choose would be 4chan. So what does Google say their rationale is and what happened here? So Google put out a statement uh, essentially apologizing and said, unfortunately, early this morning, we were briefly surfacing an inaccurate 4chan website and our search results for a small number of queries. Within hours, the 4chan story was algorithmically replaced by relevant results. This should not have appeared for any queries and will continue to make algorithmic improvements to prevent this from happening in the future. But then Google spoke to you directly and gave kind of like the background of how this story algorithmically wound up on the the page. What did they tell you? 
So here's what a Google spokesperson told me. In fact, 15% of searches we see every day are new. Before the 4chan story broke, there wasn't much surfacing about Gary Danley, which is the fake name of the shooter. And so we weren't showing a top story section for this set of queries. So when the fresh 4chan story broke, it triggered top stories, which unfortunately led to this inaccurate result. Do they have an argument for why they don't have a blacklist of sites? I think they're, they, you know, they haven't really articulated one that's coherent. I would guess they just want their algorithm to improve and get better. They say they're going to make changes to their algorithm so it doesn't happen. A great change would be to blacklist 4chan. I do understand, though, the impulse to fix any search problem with algorithms. Like, they've been saying this for years, and I think it makes some sense that since 15% of all their search queries have never been made before, right? That's what they're saying. Instead of solving one problem at a time somewhat manually, for instance, like blacklisting 4chan, you could basically train that system to identify sites as unreputable as 4chan, as news, so that the next time a 4chan-like site winds up in a novel search, it wouldn't show up, right? Right. But remember, these algorithms are really complex. And, you know, Google and these tech companies have the best software developers in the world. So you can do both. You can make it so 4chan doesn't appear in top stories while simultaneously training your algorithm so that it doesn't display sites that are like 4chan in the top stories module. Google isn't alone in having this problem, right? No, they're not. You know, Facebook is probably one of the biggest offenders in this arena. And yesterday, their trending module was surfacing stories from Sputnik, which is widely regarded as a Russian propaganda outlet. And one of the stories they surfaced from Sputnik was that the shooter had connections to foreign terror, which, as we know now, is not true. I think this also illustrates a problem uh, with the way tech companies talk about their algorithmically generated suggestions as well in a broader sense, right? Like Google seems very happy to wave their hands and say it's the algorithm's fault. Is this a computer problem? So it's hard to blame the computers in this scenario, right? Because these computers are programmed and designed by human beings that are being paid and managed by Google. You know, it's not like they have some runaway machine that they created and they can't control and they can't rein it in. It's totally 100% controllable. It's not a bug. By Google. It's certainly not a bug. They're working as intended. Did the problem get fixed? Well, 4chan isn't showing up in top stories anymore, at least for that search. But who's to say 4chan won't show up again? William Charton is a staff writer here at The Outline. Thanks, William. Thanks, John. The future. 30 years ago, Terry Winograd, a Stanford computer scientist cum philosopher, wrote a book called Understanding Computers and Cognition. The book is now well-known in artificial intelligence circles, but rarely discussed outside of them. But it marked an important break with the early philosophy of AI. In the book, Winograd argued that for AI to benefit civilization, its designers would need to do more than simply make machines replicate human processes. 
Winograd was the first serious thinker to articulate a vision of AI that left a central place for the human. In the 30 years since the book was published, Winograd has come to be seen as one of AI's earliest, most influential dissidents. Hey, Terry, it's Aaron Tim speaking. Hi. Writer Aaron Timms called up Terry Winograd to hear what's changed since he wrote Understanding Computers and Cognition, and what we should make of the robot apocalypse narrative in popular AI discussion these days. So, so can you just kind of reflect on, on where you think we are in, in the debate and what the quality of the debate is and, and perhaps what it's missing? So the, there's different debates that get combined, right? I mean, I back in the 60s, maybe into the 70s, there was this sort of you know, the wave of what, was, what is now called good old-fashioned AI was um, a term that was coined for it, which was based on explicit representation, reasoning, a whole set of things, which we talk about a lot in the, in the book. Um, along with that, there was minor results, but results which were a huge step up from what was there before, which is nothing. Right. Right. So computers could do things that nobody had even thought of getting computers to do. Uh, my program was an example of that. It was very primitive from a language point of view, but compared to anything with any computer program before it, it was advanced. So this created this wave of optimism, which in turn created this wave of our, you know, is AI going to take over for us? Hello, hell, do you read me? You know, sort of in some sense, the essence of that was captured in uh, the 2001, right? Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But what happened over the ensuing decade or two is that the promise didn't show up. I mean, that even fairly mundane tasks in the real world, as opposed to a nice laboratory demonstration, didn't get that much results. And so the wave passed by. And what we said in the book clearly is this, our, our critique is a philosophical critique of the representational approach to AI. It is not a statement about, in general principle, could there be an AI? So what's happened in the last 10 years is the techniques, they've gotten better. I mean, it's not just the techniques are the same, but the fundamental advance is the amount of computation and the amount of data that it can be applied to. Sure. And they're getting notable results, I think, far more than the first wave, right? I mean, they really can't drive cars, right, and do things like that. Um, so again, once you start to get that notable result, then everybody's looking farther into the future and saying, well, "Where is this going to lead?" So, so do you think? I mean, this 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 hysteria, this this alarmism, and it's not just nominally uninformed people who are saying this. You have obviously figures like Elon Musk. Because what's going to happen is robots will be able to do everything better than us. I'm inclu- I'm including, I mean, all of us. You know. Um. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what to do about this. <laughs> uh, do, do you find that contribution to the public discussion useful? Is it um, silly? Is it um, a, a sort of legitimate? I mean, again, I'll, I'll take a mixed view here, which is having those questions out for discussion is good. Right. Uh, getting large amounts of publicity and hysteria isn't. Right. So the question is, how do you raise them in a thoughtful way without, you know, let's, you know, Without saying, okay, you know, Skynet is upon us. The tendency in our world today, and I will be an old curmudgeon here, right, uh, is go for the clickbait. Right. Um, And I think that happens a lot. And I I would say Musk is sort of on that end. Right. 
You know, I think it deserves discussion. I don't think it deserves the kind of discussion which is, oh, my God, are we in trouble? I do believe that AI is facilitating huge problems for our society, not because it's going to be smart like a person, but because it's going to take, you know, robotics is going to change the whole employment picture. And uh, the use of AI in decision-making is going to move decision-making towards directions which may not have the element of human consideration. And I think those are all big problems in AI. They're not, is it going to take us over? And, and, and do, you think, do you think there's sort of now a better understanding of, from designers, developers, programmers, about understanding human experience as opposed to sort of trying to replicate in the form of a machine a human brain? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, if you look at where the money is it's moving in the last few years, but before that, where the money was, it was all in, in some sense, how do you work, make it fit compatible with the way humans actually think, as opposed to let's have it think like a human. Things like theory sort of cross, cross that boundary. And, and, and what's sort of your sense for the openness among the sort of tech community, if you like, um, to, to those to those critiques, those modes of thinking, those sort of different ways of, of approaching the problems that they're trying to solve? So there's a fundamental issue of human nature which gets in the way here, which is if you're succeeding pretty well at what you're doing, you're not interested in changing. Sure. So to the degree that the tech community says, look at all these great successes and look at all this wonderful stuff we're doing and so on, and you say, well, wait a minute, but you're limiting yourself and so on, it doesn't it doesn't grab except for those who have a social understanding. I mean, take somebody uh, to pick an example as a former student of mine, uh, Reed Hoffman, right. who was in that symbolic systems program, as a matter of fact. Right. Uh, I think he has that understanding, and I think he does actually respond to that kind of question, and he's thinking deeply about it. Uh, but I think the majority of people who are busily succeeding with tech as they know it, mm. just, you know, why are you fussing? Right. Right. Well, so, so how, do you, how do you think that conversation should evolve if you, if you accept that there are sort of entrenched positions on both sides? Well, I think it evolves to break down, to go back to a Heideggerian term, right? Right. I mean, let's look at what's happening to Facebook right now, um, where they say, look, you know, these nice algorithms and so on. Yes, you didn't intend bad consequences, but look how they're creating bad consequences. The problem you thought you were solving doesn't approach the problem as framed differently. And I think that opens the question of how do you think in a broader term? And I think, I don't know if Zuckerberg is doing that or not, but I think, I think those, and, you know, I mean, in a way it's unfortunate, right? You don't get, I mean, again, this is very high to hear, right? You don't get response until you have a breakdown, until something is clearly enough wrong that you say, what should I do differently? That, thanks a lot, Terry. Cheers. Okay. Very good. Bye-bye. That's it for The Dispatch. We're here every Monday through Thursday morning, of course. And if you like the show, you can subscribe by finding us on Apple Podcasts or going to theoutline.com slash podcasts. You can find all our other shows there, too. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Lago Marcino. Back with more stories tomorrow. Tomorrow.